Hey, listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in to episode two of Serial Dater. If you're new to the podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to episode one first. You won't be completely lost if you don't, but you'll be less lost if you do. Thanks again for listening. Previously on Serial Dater. I've been a terrible dater for most of my life. In 2011, without meaning to, I ended up going on five first dates in one week. We organized the sequence of events in our life into chapters, episodes, and series. This is something that we all do, whether consciously or not. Without that kind of organization, we'd never be able to keep track of all the different things that have happened to us. Which brings us to date number one. I've nicknamed this guy Bowtie. I should mention, by the way, that he looked great, and I was still hoping that we might get to make out at some point. This is what I was getting by way of goodbyes, a double pet on the upper arm. The very next night, I have a date with an airline pilot. Whenever I get on an airplane these days, I spend a lot of time thinking about my seat. I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about my seat when I book the ticket, I'm almost always a window guy, sort of for the views and sort of so I can see right away if something has gone wrong mid-flight, like, you know, the wing coming off. But now, armed with smartphone apps that allow me to play seat checkers right up until I board the plane, I continuously try and jockey for a better seat. The considerations are several. Aisle window center, proximity to the front of the plane, if there's an open seat in the middle, you know, standard stuff. But I always have to spend at least one or two moments fretting over whether I'm supposed to be sitting in my original seat, so that I might meet my seatmate, who will eventually become my boyfriend-slash-husband-slash-co-parent-slash-cryptmate. One of the highest forms of meet-cute story starts on an airplane. It satisfies a need in us to believe that the universe isn't just random, that if there isn't some conscious higher power pulling the strings, at least there might be a ordering or pattern to the place. I eventually snap myself out of my seat indecision using what I'm going to call the infinite meet-cute principle. Essentially, the idea that I could meet the love of my life at any time, in any place, at any seat, and that I'm just as likely to meet them sitting in 23F as I am if I move up to 12A. Of course, even though I believe in this firmly, I'll still spend most of the flight gazing back from row 12 to row 23 to see if my instincts were right. But we still don't know the questions We may find new ways of living in the past On one recent flight, I was cured of my seat destiny panic by something even more powerful than the infinite meet-cute principle. It was one of those tiny commuter planes where first class was only two or three rows deep, and I could easily see the door to the cockpit from my seat. It was early and I was zonked, and mostly I just wanted the plane to take off so I could fall asleep, or, you know, achieve that semi-conscious state that approximates sleep when seated on an airplane. But then the cockpit door opened and out stepped the most handsome airplane pilot I'd ever seen in real life. He was young, 35 tops, clean-shaven, strong jawline, electric smile, and a retro haircut. It also didn't hurt that he wore his uniform particularly well. He came to ask the stewardess for something, but met my eye for a moment and gave me a George Clooney-like smirk wink. Needless to say, I was wide awake now, and suddenly aware of the fact that I was feeling pretty disheveled, having gotten to the airport at some grossly early hour. 
But for the entire flight, all I could think was, oh, let me introduce you to my boyfriend. He's a pilot. I didn't go on a date with this pilot. My connection was tight, and besides, there's no way to easily linger in the doorway of an aircraft during the bye-bye, bye-bye now, bye, bye-bye portion of the deplaning process. Plus, knowing me, I'd probably end up making a fool of myself with some nonsensical pickup line like, you can secure my flight deck any day, Captain. Besides, I'd already been on a date with a pilot. That's right, date number two in my five dates in one week marathon was with an airline pilot. Ladies and gentlemen, please make sure your seats are in their upright position, your tray tables are locked and stowed, and that your seatbelt is securely fastened. My name is Charlie Beckerman, and I'll be your chief purser on this episode of Serial Dater. In the last episode, I started talking about why a serialized podcast made a lot of sense for talking about life, and more specifically about dating. It all links back to narrative, the stories we tell about our own lives, both to the world and to ourselves. But sometimes, even more revealing than the stories we choose to tell is how we choose to serialize them. I mentioned last time that some of my friends had structured their life stories around relationships. But there's one component of our lives that's more universal and perhaps more central to our own personal narratives than relationships. Our jobs. In this country, our jobs are an extremely important part of our identity. It's even woven into our language. If you want to know someone's profession, you don't ask, where do you work? Or what's your profession? More common is, what do you do? Which I assume devolved out of, what do you do for a living? Or something more blunt, like, what do you do for work? But on a purely linguistic level, this reduces someone to a function. What's even more striking, though, when you think about it, is that the proper response is not, I work as a teacher, or I work at a pharmacy, but rather, I am a teacher, or I am a construction worker, or I am a financial consultant. It's not what you do, it's who you are. And that's not accidental. Often our professions can give people who don't know us a kind of key code to fill in the narrative of our lives. If I meet a doctor, I can usually safely assume that she did well in science and math in college, went to medical school, became a resident, worked long, hard, grueling hours, and didn't crack under the pressure. On the other hand, if I met, say, a public school teacher, I could infer that he liked working with children and was probably a bit of an idealist, prioritizing a certain type of work over a certain type of salary. I guess even more important than the life story stuff, though, is that knowing someone's vocation gives us a shorthand for what their day-to-day existence is like. Bowtie had worked an office job, but was attending school at night, so even though I didn't know him that well, I felt like I had a fairly decent grasp on what his day had been like. Similarly, when I'd gone on a date with a public school teacher who taught mathematics at a local middle school, I didn't need him to explain what his classroom looked like or how it worked. I just took what I already knew of middle school classrooms and, you know, filled in the blanks. It's possible that the image I had in my mind was completely inaccurate, but for the purposes of our one date, it was fine. In 
In the spring of 2011, during my week o dates, I was doing pretty well in the profession category, even if I was about to give it up to go to grad school. Though some people found comic book editor misleading and were disappointed when I said I neither drew nor wrote the comics, nor did I hang out with Spider-Man all day, ultimately it sounded both exciting and sturdy, combining the fun of comic books with the regularity of weekly publication. For the people I met who were comic book fans, I could discuss the finer intricacies of what was going on in the Marvel Universe. For the non-fanboys, I could explain what a comic book editor did, more or less the same function as, say, a film producer, focusing more on schedules and bringing talent together than the physical creation of the comic itself. Still, when guys asked me what I did and I said I edit comics at Marvel, their eyes almost invariably lit up, as if I'd said I was a superhero myself. It was like I had an ace up my sleeve, or, you know, at least a high-value face card. For what it's worth, telling guys I'm a writer doesn't have nearly the same universal cachet, especially at this nascent point in my career. Confessing to being a working artist on a date carries risks. The job discussion isn't only about establishing identity, it's also about evaluating the other person. If someone's going to say that they're a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher, we know that this corresponds to a hierarchy of credentials and certifications. They're not just saying it. Even for people like office workers, they have the backing of their employment to verify them. Saying you're an artist? That could mean that you've got a show in Chelsea next week, or it could mean that you like to go to sips and strokes wine and painting events on the weekends. Both are totally valid definitions of an artist, but it makes it hard to translate the profession into meaningful data. I suppose this underscores a base but important component of what someone's job tells us about who they are. How much money they make. Corporate lawyers and financial bankers represent one financial kind of potential mate, while assistant editors and educators represent another. I can honestly say I've never passed on a guy because he didn't make enough money, but I'd be naive to suggest that I didn't factor their finances into my fantasies. Even still, that's just details, like writing exercises where you have to incorporate random elements into the story. The Wall Street banker who makes me risotto in his condo with floor-to-ceiling windows is no more or less romantic than the graduate student who invites me over to his fourth-floor walk-up for cheap Chinese food. But while there are more and less interesting jobs out there for potential mates to have, there are a few that just sound so cool that they blow all the others out of the water. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to date number two, the pilot. I met the pilot on a gays-only dating website called Connection, spelled with an X, which sadly no longer exists, taking all of my message exchanges with it. I made a chart delineating the better and worse ways of meeting someone on the scale of more and less likely to tell the story at the wedding. Connection fell somewhere between more mainstream dating websites like OkCupid and Match.com and hookup services like, say, Grindr or, and I swear this is a real website, Manhunt.com. You can see the whole chart on the website. The pilot had a name like he was a character on Gossip Girl, one that suggested a childhood of weekends at his parents' club, summers on a yacht, and closets full of shorts with embroidered anchors and boat shoes. I'm going to call him Chase. My online conversations with Chase weren't exactly spectacular, and at one point he disappeared for a few days, though he explained later that this was because he had been in 12 states in the last 48 hours. 
On the scale of awesome sounding jobs, pilot is pretty far towards the top, probably just below heart surgeon or astronaut. The pilot's online picture is lost to the internet sands of time, but from what I remember, let's just say that much of the stock I was putting in this guy rested on the fact that he drove large vehicles through the sky for a living. In my conversations with my friends, there were no, he's so cute, comments like there had been with Bowtie. In the previous episode, I talked about how a good meet-cute can cure years of celibacy. Well, the same thing is true with a winning guy, meet-cute be damned. For instance, if actor Lee Pace listens to this podcast and then asks me out, I will stamp the words WORTH IT with a big rubber stamp in red ink over my shitty dating 20s. And, you know, early 30s. Potential partners with great jobs have the same healing ability. Oh, my husband? He works for NASA. As if the entire time my master plan was to stay single for an entire decade and then suddenly bag an astronaut. For the record, this is not not my plan, so if there are any eligible gay astronauts out there, feel free to drop me a line. Pilots specifically have a weird draw that I can't quite figure out, though. Just a year earlier in the fantastical world of 30 Rock, Liz Lemon, played by Tina Fey, had seemingly met the man of her dreams in another pilot, Carol, played by uber-cutest guy at school, Matt Damon. Saturday. Are you a doorman? Yeah, I'm a doorman. To the sky. I'm a pilot. Oh, okay. I was flying the 7 a.m. from Tampa to Louisville, and we had a two-hour weather delay, so naturally all the passengers got drunk. Generally speaking, if there's a delay of more than 20 minutes, I might as well be driving a party bus. It's just idiocy. I don't know what's going on in this country. I know. People wear flip-flops to church. And the NBA tattoo situation is out of control. Thank you. Anyway, we're about to have- Similar to how Liz and Carol's relationship is full of struggle to find time to spend together, most of the predate conversation with the pilot centered around trying to find a time when he'd be in New York long enough for us to actually have a date. As it turned out, the only night that worked was the day right after my date with Bowtie. He was flying out the next morning and asked to meet as early as possible, and we settled on six. He even had a place in mind, which, after the mind-numbing ambivalence of bow tie, was delightfully refreshing. He chose a gay bar in Hell's Kitchen called, I swear to God, Barrage, which, I don't know why that's the gayest-sounding bar ever, but it is. The place was pretty tame at six in the evening on a Thursday when I got there, though I ended up waiting for about 20 minutes. I tried to keep myself psyched up during the delay by repeating, airplanes, under my breath over and over. By the time he'd arrived, I was already halfway through my pint of beer. I watched him order a Klosthaler and learned my first fun fact of the evening. Pilots can't have any alcohol within 12 hours of piloting an aircraft, which I guess is a good thing, but it put a little bit of a damper on the date. He wasn't a bad-looking guy, but he was no stunner either. Frankly, he looked like a guy who sat at a desk all day. He wasn't fat, but he wasn't exactly fit, and I got the sense that he wasn't getting fitter anytime soon. Side note, I myself am someone who sits at a desk all day and, while not fat, choose the term average to describe my body type across most dating platforms that ask the question. All by way of saying that there is an unsurprising amount of pot-calling-the-kettle bullshit that goes on on my part. He'd also worn an incongruous outfit of an untucked button-up shirt, khakis, gym shoes, and a green baseball cap. Which, fine, but instead of what I was going for with a stylish polo shirt and fitted jeans, something that said, I just threw this on, but I look pretty good. His getup said, 
I just threw this on and I don't really care how I look because I'm a fucking pilot. Honestly, how he didn't wear his uniform when he went to meet guys, I didn't quite understand. But whatever. I got the impression that only one of us had shown up to this date. Still, as someone who finds planes and flight and science fascinating, I was unable to stop myself from launching in with a bunch of what's it like to be a pilot questions. So what kind of planes do you fly? Embraer E-175s. Oh, cool. What cities do you fly to? Oh, you know, Charlotte, Atlanta, Knoxville, Charleston, Lexington. Nice. How far west do you go? Dallas, I guess. At a certain point, though, I realized I was the only one asking the questions. This wasn't the first time this had happened to me, where the date shifts from a conversation of mutual discovery into a poorly informed Terry Gross interview. Welcome back to Fresh Air. We're talking to Chase, who's an airline pilot. So, Chase, I'd imagine that your job makes it difficult to maintain a network of friends in your hometown of New York. Talk to us for a minute about how that's affected your time here. I feel like there should be some adage that addresses this phenomenon, and the best I could come up with was, it's better to play tennis with a wall than with a bad opponent. Okay, that has a slightly more yuppie-ish feel to it than I had intended, but to follow the metaphor through, with every well-aimed swing of my racket, the pilot would return the ball right into the net, or send it right over the fence, and then it'd be my turn to serve again. It was that, or walk off the court. Of course, what really had my tennis shorts in a twist was that my job wasn't exactly boring. It's not like we'd established that I was an insurance claims adjuster, no offense to insurance claims adjusters, and therefore we shouldn't talk about it. And, yes, I was about to head off to the make-believe world of graduate school, but that was second-date information as far as I was concerned. I'm almost totally certain that he knew what I did, and yet despite the possibility of discussing overly muscled men in skimpy costumes, the topic of airplanes persisted, and I felt unable to inject anything about myself into the conversation without coming across as self-important. But also... Who was this person who was either unable or unwilling to ask me anything about my job or my life? What did he do when he went on dates with guys who weren't airplane nerds? And if he wasn't planning on asking me anything, what were we doing there? Of course, reducing the pilot to being some egocentric, self-obsessed maniac is far too easy, and not a little unfair. The problem wasn't him. It was us. See, I never really dated in high school and only dabbled in dating in college, so when I started hitting the dating scene in my early 20s, actually, you know what, hitting might be too strong a term. When I started gently padding the dating scene in my early 20s, I was somewhat surprised to find that there were a whole army of guys who were bad at conversations. It wasn't until later, in my late 20s, that my friend Anna gave me the term for it. Talking about a bad date of her own, she said, there just wasn't any rat-a-tat. If I can get meta for one second, we need a term for concepts that have no word to describe them, but when one comes along, you're like, yes, that. 
It's like a neologism right before the new word is coined, a lepelogism, if you will, from the Greek lepe, meaning missing. Ratatat was one of these, and when I learned it, it was like I'd finally gotten the defroster working and could see out of my windshield clearly. Because it represented this thing I thought I knew so intimately, it never needed to be formally defined. But let's take a crack at a definition here. Ratatat, noun. The ability of two or more people to have an easy, interesting conversation or discussion, one that builds organically and parabolically, the line of thought going fascinating and unexpected places, a natural and free-flowing dialogue. It's the conversational equivalent to mutual attraction. In my early dating days, I was shocked at how many of the guys I went out with didn't have it, and even more shocked at how important it was to me. But blaming the pilot for lack of ratatat was like me being cross with mushrooms because I don't like their revolting texture. We just weren't made for each other. And that's fine. It can even be somewhat reassuring to figure out this earlier on, saving us both time in the long run. There's a moment on dates like these, that is, not great dates, when I decide that this will be the last time I see this person. It's not like I'm sitting there weighing the pros and cons while the other person is talking. It's more like there's a click sometimes in reaction to something they say, sometimes just out of nowhere. Whatever the cause, from that moment on, the foot gets taken off the gas, or perhaps more appropriately, the throttle is set to neutral, and we just sort of coast in for a landing. On the other hand, here I was sitting with a captive airline pilot who seemed ready and willing to answer every last one of my nerdy airplane questions. So in my mind, I just turned the date into question time with Chase the pilot. What would you say is the hardest airport to land at? Washington National. With the no-fly zones over the Pentagon, CIA, and the White House, you have to take off and land really sharply. Why do they have so many flights at such ungodly hours of the morning? Every minute that a plane isn't in the air, the airline is losing money. They schedule each plane within an inch of its life. Do you like your job? Eh. I was actually almost starting to have a good time. An unromantic good time. When he looked at his watch, announced it was 8 o'clock, and said he had to get to bed for his 3 a.m. shuttle to the airport. Outside of the bar, he hailed a cab and we shook hands. He said that he had a great time and said we should do it again. I'd like to say that I took a second to reconsider him, to look at him anew, to try and back up my snap judgments and understand who this person was, where he was coming from, what might be just beneath the surface, something I had overlooked, the thing that would let me know that in fact this guy could be someone really special, maybe even the one. We lived the life of a jet-setting gay couple with an unlimited airplane budget, hitting Aspen, Bangkok, Cozumel, and Zanzibar. Maybe we'd get a dog. I'd like to say that I did all that, but I didn't. I thought briefly about the fact that I'd get another chance to think of and ask even more questions about airplanes, and that I'd continued to get to say for another week or so that I was going on a date with a pilot. But it didn't matter. I said the same thing, the only thing you can say when someone says we should do this again. Yeah, that'd be great. In case any of you listeners are thinking about engaging in some sort of dating marathon after listening to this podcast, be warned. 
It is not only exhausting, but it will also prompt you to have a lot of deep thoughts about sex in the city. I won't go so far as to say that everything I ever needed to know about dating I learned from Sex in the City, but there are a few important gems that one can strain out of Carrie's bad puns and worse writing. In this particular instance, the pilot had turned into good on paper guy. Is that the guy from the book party? Yeah. I've got to start reading. It's cute. Just I'm not really sure I'm interested. Good looking, polite, house in the Hamptons. Good on paper. Oh, you know the rule. Huh. Good on paper, bad in bed. <laughs> a good on paper guy is a guy with great credentials who you always end up leaving for some hot guy who rides a motorcycle and doesn't have a checking account. But why should that be? What is it about someone being intellectually correct that makes them effectually lame? After the pilot sped away in his cab, I thought about why it was that good on paper guys get such a tough rap. And the conclusion I came to was this. If being good on paper is what you're known for, the way that people talk about you, then it might be the best thing you have going for you. And that's a problem. Good on paper almost comes off as an excuse. The fact that the best thing I could say for the pilot was that he was a pilot, well, it held less water than I thought it would. And this is hardly surprising. Thinking back to Carol and Liz on 30 Rock, their budding relationship wasn't powered by Carol's being a pilot, but by their common interests. I thought you had a flight. Yeah, I do. Those dirtbags can wait on the runway a couple more hours. I hate people, too. Look, In all fairness, I should probably at least acknowledge the possibility that my chomping down on the pilot's profession might have had something to do with the one-note quality of the evening. Maybe the pilot simply thought that that's all I was interested in. Maybe he hated talking about being a pilot. If that's the case, I'm willing to take my share of the responsibility for our lackluster date, but I don't think it had changed much. If we spent nearly two hours talking together and neither one of us was able to intuit the dissatisfaction of the other, then chances are that our incompatibility went deeper than just a lack of rat-a-tat. Also, I knew that both the pilot and Bo Tai were fighting an uphill battle. My impending departure from New York had the contradictory effect of a get-it-while-the-getting's-good enthusiasm for going on dates on the one hand, and on the other, an extremely high bar for a second date. My time in New York was limited, and I had no room in my schedule for guys I felt lukewarm about. Even worse, a month earlier, I'd gone on two or three dates with a guy I had been nuts about, though it hadn't gone anywhere. This was a guy who I liked so much that I would have scuttled my graduate school plans had things worked out. And even though I knew it was a dick move, I couldn't help but compare these guys to him. I felt a little bit like the cliched casting director who keeps calling, NEXT! as soon as he's verified that the auditioner in front of him doesn't have it, whatever it is. But, in retrospect, these first two dates were fine. I don't know whether, had circumstances been different, I would have gone on a second, or, who knows, third, fourth, dates with either one. But I very well might have. The same cannot be said for date number three. If my limbo-y feelings about the pilot were lukewarm, the next date would leave me in the freeze of Satan's mouth in the ninth circle of hell. Next time on Serial Dater. Serial Dater is written, produced, and edited by me. 
Special thanks to Anna Marquart, Fatih Ahmed, Julia Weatherell, Diane Roberts, and her 2013 article and essay workshop. Extra special thanks to the Petticoat Lane Writers' Residency and the Michael and Karen Beckerman Fund for aspiring podcasters. The pilot played by Adam Enright, music written and performed by Promdate. You can find their album, Portraits, at www.promdatemusic.com. For more information on Serial Dater, please visit our website, www.serialdaterpodcast.com. Keep me warm.